0: to the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter 1, and as I mentioned we're going to be continuing our message series through this book. We've just started, last week Pastor Paul uh, introduced us to what we're going to be experiencing as we go through this book, likely take us close to a year with a few breaks in between, Uh, but as we seek to do most Sundays, um, we look to understand and open God's word and um, work our way through a book to understand and see the consistent message and pattern uh, that God brings to us um, through it. All right. I'm trying to see if Paul's gesturing to me. No? Okay, we're good. Uh, if you don't have a Bible in front of you, then there are, the words will be projected on the overheads as well. But if, um, if it would help you to have a Bible in your hands, then uh, maybe we can get one to you as well. There are Bibles at the back. Um, so please uh, make sure you can, and can see uh, the scriptures as we go through it now. So Romans chapter 1, we're starting in verse 8, and we're going to read through to verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I encourage you to keep that passage open in front of you if you can. Uh, We'll be referring back to it frequently. But let me pray uh, at the start of our time in getting into God's word. Father, I thank you for speaking to us and for giving us your word. I'm very much aware of the need for you to help me now and help us all to engage and rightly receive what you would speak to us. Please help me to speak. Please help us to receive and listen and to be transformed, renewed in our faith and built up. And bring glory to you in our lives as we submit and are transformed by your words, activity in our lives. Do this through the work of your spirit and all for the glory of the name of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul is completing his opening remarks to the church in Rome. He 's expressing thankfulness for the church, and he 's communicating something of his heart of longing to be with them and to visit them and i don 't know about you, but often it 's uh, easy to approach some of the letters of the gospels or the letters in the in the Bible rather uh, and categorize the first opening remarks as kind of the normal things Paul has to say and then we 'll get into the meat of it um, but there are some interesting and I think curious things to see and be challenged by in our passage this morning that I think will reward us in spending time going through them. Although it may seem like a rather straightforward passage, I think there's something I want us to see that might strike us as quite odd when we recognize it. And that that there appears to be an apparent disconnect between the first and the last verse of our passage. If you can see both of them in front of you, I'll, I'll read them to you again. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. And then lastly, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I thank God for you because your faith is talked about throughout the known world and I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. Does that initially strike you as a little odd? It does to me. On the one hand, we have Paul thanking God for this Roman church, for their faith, which has developed a reputation throughout the known world at the time. For all the things that people could have been talking about, this group of believers, perhaps their perseverance through trial, maybe their strategic position in the capital city of of the world there in Rome. Maybe they had awesome potlucks, we don't know. But the thing that people were really talking about, about this church, was their faith. These Christians knew what they believed, the central truths of knowing God through Jesus Christ, and they stuck to it. Now, what would you think a church with that sort of reputation would need to hear? Maybe they'd need some teaching on evangelism or on apologetics so that they would learn how to share this faith in the cosmopolitan city in which they lived. Or perhaps rather we would expect this letter to focus less on what they needed, because they seemed to have it together, and more on what could they offer. Do they have any leaders with this faith that they could perhaps send to other churches? Maybe they could be praying for the churches in Asia and Macedonia, or maybe they could be contributing to the church in Jerusalem. These things could have made sense to a church with faith, world-renowned faith, I think, wouldn't they? So I think it's fair to say that what Paul does say to them of wanting to preach the gospel should should pique our curiosity and grab our attention. Because this church, with a worldwide faith, world-known faith, Paul is eager to preach the gospel to them again. And this isn't some... Daydream or some slight of fancy that Paul's just thought about, up, thought to uh, come up with. You know, It'd be mean, nice, nice to take a trip to the capital, see some sights, preach to the local church while I'm there. Paul is in earnest. And we see it in this passage. In verse 9, he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may know at last, succeed in coming to you. And then we read at the end of Paul's letter, in chapter 15, Paul has had this longing for years, and just not been able to execute a trip to Rome. He's been eager to travel there, all with the purpose of preaching the gospel to believers in that city. So let's hear from our passage these reasons that Paul gives for wanting to be so his eagerness to go and preach the gospel to these Christians in Rome, and see if we can make sense of this apparent disconnection between the, last, the first and the last verses of this section. And while none of us are apostles, we'll see that there is a similar motivation, a similar opportunity, and a similar obligation to share the gospel that is in common with all believers. Although Paul had an apostolic calling, we all share in a gospel calling, which is similar in type with the apostle. It may only vary in different in degrees in, which, in how we live that out. So we're going to see three reasons that Paul gives us for his eagerness to share the gospel to those in Rome and, and think about what that means for us today as Christians in Haverhill, Massachusetts. So the first point in verses 11 and 12, we should be eager to share the gospel as doing so brings mutual encouragement. We should be eager to share the gospel because doing so brings mutual encouragement. Again, look in verse 11. Paul says, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Here we see the first effect that Paul desires to have for the Roman church, and it's to strengthen and to encourage them in their faith. Now, you might be wondering which spiritual gift Paul has in mind to bring them in the sense of spiritual gifts of the the gifts of the spirit, like prophecy or teaching or serving, for example. But in the context of the letter to the Romans, and in this passage in particular, the gift Paul is talking about is the gift of the gospel and the multitude of blessings that proceed from it and rest upon the gospel paul actually uses this word gift six times in this particular letter and five of those is he's referring to the gospel and it's only towards the end of the letter in chapter 12 that he uses it to refer to gifts of the spirit like prophecy and teaching paul knows that sharing the gospel with the church is a means to encourage and strengthen these believers and I dare say that's been your experience as it has been mine. When we hear other Christians profess their faith through sharing the gospel, the same gospel that we believe and the blessings of that faith, aren't we and built up in our encouraged in our own faith? There's many contexts that we have to do that in church life. But that's one of the reasons why we have the sharing mic, so that on Sunday mornings, if there are specific ways that people feel led to share of how God has met them through the gospel and how he sees them working, it's a chance for us to share that as a church to encourage and build us up in our faith. And recognize, too, that Paul's not thinking about this encouragement only in one way, from apostle to church believer. But he is anticipating mutual encouragement for himself as well as for the church. As they each share the gospel and their experience of God's grace through that gospel. It's worth realizing that Paul has never met the Roman church before. He wasn't responsible for bringing them the gospel in the first place. He wasn't responsible for this church plant and growing. But rather than his unfamiliarity with them, lessening his desire to go see them, it actually serves to increase his longing to hear from a church sharing their faith that he's had nothing to do with. Again, I suspect most of us have had similar experiences. There is an added encouragement, isn't there, of hearing from men and women with whom we have had, we've had no particular connection, but hearing them profess their faith in the same gospel in which we believe. Doesn't it affirm that we're not alone in what we believe? And it reminds us that God is not dependent solely on us to see the gospel spread and to grow. What an encouragement to our faith in God and in his desire to save lost sinners and build them up in Christ to hear about his activity apart from us. We've heard that just recently in uh, Paul Miller telling us about the church in Nepal And then earlier in the summer, some of us were able to witness the very first baptism at King of Peace Church in Salem, Massachusetts, one of our sister churches. And I'm sure that for those who saw and experienced those things, like me, you were encouraged and built up in your faith to hear and see what God is doing elsewhere and apart from us. God's word tells us and our experience confirms what a great encouragement it is in our faith to share the gospel And to hear it shared from others. So let's not wait until we sense that either we're struggling or others are struggling. Before we encourage them through the gospel. This church had a world-renowned faith. And Paul wanted to encourage them. Paul was a world-renowned apostle. With a unique Damascus Road vision of the risen Lord. And he wanted to be encouraged if it would serve the Roman church and the Apostle Paul through sharing the gospel and strengthening and encouraging them, I know that you and I would be encouraged and strengthened as we do that as well. So we should be eager to share the gospel as doing so brings mutual encouragement. The second thing we see is in verse 13, that we should be eager to share the gospel as doing so produces spiritual fruit. Look at verse 13 with me. Paul writes, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you but have thus far been prevented in order that I may reap a harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Now in the original language and some of other translations uh, translate it a little differently as well, the word translated harvest in the ESV is referring to seeing spiritual fruit among God's people. It's a theme Paul picks up later in this particular letter. And I think we have these verses in Romans chapter 6. He says, For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God... The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And sanctification there talks about, describes the Christian life of growing in holiness and growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Again, he, com- he continues in uh, chapter 7, verse 4. He says, likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul is very much aware in his own life and in the lives of the churches he's been part of, to see them grow, that God intends believers everywhere to grow in bearing spiritual fruit, both for their own blessing and also for the glory of God. If you remember, Jesus himself taught the very same truths in the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, no, in John 15. Sermon on the Mount comes a little bit later. In John chapter 15, Jesus taught his disciples. He said, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And again, uh, in verse 8 of that same chapter he says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. The scriptures affirm this twofold purpose of fruitfulness in the Christian life, of blessings for the believer, and of glorifying God as the source of any and all spiritual fruit in our lives. And what's interesting to note from our passage today and verse 13 in particular is we see that Christian fruitfulness is not simply a personal or private matter between individual believer and God. But that other believers around us can contribute to that process of us producing spiritual fruit. And Paul is eager to be part of that spiritual fruitfulness in the Roman church. And the way he knows to do that is through sharing the gospel with them. Here, Paul models for us what it's like to have godly ambition. Now, ambition can be something of a little bit of a dirty word for Christians, I think. That having ambition is something that's inherently against the Christian life, that it's naturally self-centered. And as Christians, we know that God's called us to turn from being self-centered and to turn to having our lives centered on him. And we also know that in the context of my relationships with other people, ambition is sometimes thought about in terms of winning and losing. And if I have ambition for something and I'm going to pursue it to win it, it kind of inherently means that someone else is going to lose. And so as a Christian, perhaps what that means is we need to put others before ourselves and it means we need to accept losing our ambition so that others can win. Well, if that's your way of thinking about ambition, and it certainly was mine for a long time, but it doesn't really align with what the scriptures hold before us. Yes, our lives are to be centered on God, and we are to put others before ourselves, but that does not mean that a God-centered, others-considerate life doesn't also bring benefit and blessing to me. In fact, quite the opposite. A God-centered, others-considerate life is the only true means of bringing lasting blessing and benefit to me. Now we get to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus himself, he taught his disciples to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven. And he gave examples of how disciples can do that. Of how God will give reward to those who give to the needy discreetly. To those who fast and pray for others. To those who forgive others their trespasses against them. So let me ask you, who benefits from those examples of giving and praying and forgiving? Is it the person doing those things who receives reward from God? Or is it the needy person who receives? Or those who are prayed for? Or those who are forgiven? Well, of course, it's not either or. It's both are blessed. And the same is true for Paul's ambition for the Roman church. It is a truly godly ambition for his desire for fruitfulness for them is an ambition for more of God's blessing and reward for the church and for himself and for God's glory. Paul's desire for the Roman church is the desire or should be the desire of any discipling relationship to see a person grow in fruitfulness to God. And Paul knows the soil that produces fruit has to be gospel-saturated soil. So he's eager to share the gospel with them and he sets that example for us. Let me give just a specific encouragement here to parents in particular. Parents, teach the Bible to your kids. But not simply so that your kids know the words on the pages of this book. But so they know the gospel of Jesus from the pages of this book. And when it seems like by God's grace, they know and receive the gospel of Jesus for themselves, continue to share the gospel of Jesus with your kids. Share with them how the gospel shapes your life and continue to sow into them to encourage spiritual fruitfulness in their own lives. The gospel is the soil in which fruitfulness grows. So let's all of us be eager to share the gospel as doing so produces spiritual fruit. Thirdly, in verse 14, we see that we should be eager to share the gospel as doing so meets our all-inclusive obligation. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Here, Paul explains that part of his eagerness to share the gospel comes from his sense of obligation to the Roman church. Now, perhaps that strikes you as a little odd and perhaps contrary to what you've typically thought of in terms of obligation, because isn't the gospel really an obligation to God? And it is true that we have been entrusted by God with the gospel, and that puts us in obligation to him. We are Christ's ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. So we are obliged to represent our master and discharge his message faithfully. However, here... Paul's focus is on the other side of the same gospel coin, as it were. Not his obligation to the one from whom he received the gospel, but rather his obligation to the ones for whom he, was to, he is to share the gospel. God has entrusted Paul with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and particularly for Paul to share the gospel with the Gentile or the non-Jewish world. It's not entirely clear from the passage the distinctions that Paul makes here, Greeks, barbarians, wise, foolish, whether those are similar pairings or whether they're completely distinctive. It doesn't really matter, I don't think. In general, we know and understand what he's referring to is the full range of nationalities, of languages, of cultures, of intelligence, of education, found within the Gentile world that Paul was seeking uh, seeking to reach. Both in Rome, but also beyond Rome, because we know Rome was not his final destination, or what he hoped to be his final destination, was actually to go on to Spain and preach the gospel there as well. And every person Paul planned to encounter, he has on his mind sharing the gospel with them. In case you have the wrong image in mind, let me just say as well, the barbarian doesn't mean doesn't refer to a conan, the barbarian type of people, I'm afraid. It's simply a term that's used to, was used to refer to non-Greek speakers, because their foreign language or their foreign tongue was often characterized as nonsensical babbling of a bar-bar-bar-bar-bar-bar. So that's where the barbarian word came from. And these are only some categories of the people that God intends his gospel to come to. In the very next verse beyond our passage, Paul's going to speak about bringing the gospel to Jew as well as to Greek. So Paul knew that he had an obligation or a debt to the Gentile world, which included the Roman church. John Stott, on his commentary on this verse, he says there's two ways of getting into debt. The first is to borrow money from someone. The second is to be given money for someone by a third person. For example, if you were to give me $1,000 from, from you, then I would be in your debt until I paid it back. But equally, if a friend of yours was to give me $1,000 to give to you, I would be in your debt until I gave or handed over that gift to you. In the first case, I would be in debt through borrowing. In the second case, I will be in debt to you because of what's been entrusted to me. And it's in this second case that Paul sensed his indebtedness and obligation to the Romans. Notice then, from Paul's example, that this obligation doesn't end when somebody accepts the gospel and becomes a Christian. Paul's eager to share the gospel with Christian and non-Christian alike. Certainly, the application of the gospel message and the call to respond will be different between believer and unbeliever, but the obligation to share the gospel is all-inclusive for every age and gender, culture and background, for Christian and non-Christian alike. The moment you and I accepted the gospel, God gave us two things, salvation in Christ and the message of salvation to share with others. So we should be eager to share the gospel, as doing so meets our all-inclusive obligation. Now, I've deliberately saved one important thing to the end, and it's actually the most important thing of all in our passage. What exactly does Paul mean when he says, preach the gospel to the Roman church? I've heard it said, and perhaps you have too, that as Christians, we should be ready to share the gospel with someone in maybe less than three minutes, so that we have, we're ready for whenever we find ourselves with that opportunity. Well, is that what Paul has in mind here? Was he thinking of traveling all the way to Rome to share a three-minute message with the church? Maybe he was planning just to repeat that three-minute message over and over and over again until he saw the effects that we've seen from our passage. Is that what it means to share the gospel? And is that what it means for us to share the gospel? Well, yes and no. The essence of the gospel certainly can be shared in less than three minutes. The gospel is the fantastic news that God has graciously and mercifully done all that is necessary to reconcile the lost and wicked sinners to himself. And though you may not recognize yourself by that description, God has made each and every one of us and given us life, and we are expected to enjoy it with him and by his terms. But instead, every one of us has taken the gift of life and tried to live it on our own terms, rejecting God and his right place over us. The simple term that the Bible uses for that is sin. And God's right and good and just response to sin is to punish it appropriately. Because God, sin is against the supremely holy and eternal and almighty creator, that appropriate punishment is the most severe imaginable. Death and eternal condemnation in hell for our wickedness. But because God is love, he also made a way of rescue. He sent his son, Jesus, into the world. The creator became a creature. And he did so. He, did, he enjoyed life with God the Father on God's terms. Living the perfect life that you and I were supposed to live. And though Jesus experienced every temptation to do so, never once did he try to live life on his own terms and apart from God, even to the point of following his father's path to the cross. Though he appeared to suffer punishment from man, truly he experienced punishment from his father. As he experienced the fullness of God's wrath against the sin of man. Taking on, their, taking on him what was not his own. And now God promises to forgive all who turn from life on their own terms, who trust that Jesus took their punishment that they deserved and seek to submit their lives to God. To those who would hear and believe in this gospel, this good news, God grants new life in Jesus' resurrected life. And he credits to us Jesus' perfect obedience and promises to give us the power of his spirit to live for him in every way. That is the essence of the gospel. And it could be that you've not heard that before, or perhaps you've not responded to it before today in the way that God wants you to. If that's the case, then God has given me an exciting privilege to have been able to share that message with you. But I need to tell you now that I have fulfilled my obligation of sharing the gospel with you. And that obligation to respond now lives with you. God has given you the obligation to receive this free gift of new life through Jesus Christ. And you can either receive it or you can refuse it. I'm afraid there is no third option. There is no cho- choosing to wait to respond to the message of the gospel because choosing to wait is the same as saying no to God's free gift of salvation, and that would leave you with no hope for when you were to stand before God in judgment. So please do not wait if this applies to you, do not refuse God's gift. Even right now, God is standing by knowing that you have yet to receive his mercy and his grace through his son, Jesus Christ. And he is longing for you to accept the good news of the gospel for yourself. You can do that right now. You can do it through simply praying. Lord, I recognize you're speaking to me. Please forgive me. I trust in Christ. I turn to you and I want to live for you. Please help me do so. But I know for most of us here, many of us here, have heard the gospel just like I've presented it. And I'm sure there's actually many of you could present it far more clearly and far, far more adequately than I can. Now, I in no way mean to diminish how wonderful and significant the good news of the gospel is. But I do want to ask the question, is that succinct gospel message all that Paul means in sharing the gospel? are we simply to repeat some version of that to one another when we are called to share the gospel i think there is danger if that is all we do you see in verse 9 in our passage it tells us that the gospel is the gospel of a person it is the gospel of God's son jesus and it may well very serve it may well serve on some occasions to reduce the gospel message down to its essence, down to its bare bones, as it were. But the bare bones are limited in able to be able to convey the fullness of a person, of who that person is, in this case, who Jesus is, and the fullness of life that we have in him through the gospel. If we only think of sharing the gospel in terms of only sharing the bare bones of the message we will very quickly miss out on all that God intends for us to enjoy and others to enjoy and experience through the life we have in Christ Jesus. Simply repeating the same bare bones gospel can end up a little bit like going to a doctor who always prescribes the exact same thing regardless of our complaint. Doesn't matter what ails us, doesn't matter whatever what need we have. The assessment she gives is always the same. and It doesn't matter what it is that she may say. And maybe it's very helpful to start with, and maybe it's very helpful on multiple occasions. But we recognize there's a pattern here that every time we go to the doctor, we hear the exact same prescription. And after a while, we probably start thinking to ourselves, well, why do I need to go to the doctor? I know what they're going to tell me. I'll just do it anyway. Do whatever it is they prescribe. And maybe it continues to work sometimes, but then what happens when it doesn't work? When something comes up and you follow the doctor's simple and repetitive counsel and it no longer works? What will happen to your faith in that doctor? Well, sharing the gospel with other believers, yes, it means rehearsing the good news of God's mercy and grace to undeserving sinners to forgive our sins and to unite us with his son and his new life. But it also means then going on to connect that good news with all the joys and the blessings and the expectations that flow from that good news of what it means to have life in Jesus Christ. And I'm confident that that's what Paul means here when he's talking about sharing the gospel with the Romans because that's exactly what he does through the rest of his letter. Just as he does in all of his letters. He doesn't simply rehearse a bare bones good repetition of the gospel although it is embedded through his letter. Otherwise his letters would be very short and we know that they're not. Rather, he's this one, this particular, that goes on for 15 more chapters. And it is full of fours and therefores that connect the gospel in a multitude of ways into the fullness of life, of blessing, and calling that applies to all those who have received Jesus as Lord and Savior. The gospel blessings, just from this letter to the Romans alone, reminds us that because of the gospel of Christ, we can be sure of God's love for us and that we have peace with him. And he calls us to peace and unity with each other. Because of the gospel of Christ, we can stand in the righteousness of Christ and we are declared justified in God's sight. There is now no condemnation that awaits us, only the sure hope of joy and glory in God for all eternity. Because of the gospel of Christ and our declaration of faith through baptism, we experience the freedom of having died to sin with Christ and being alive to God in Jesus' resurrected life. Because of the gospel of Christ, we are adopted into God's family and called God's children, and we will never be separated from our Heavenly Father. Because of the gospel of Christ, we can have every confidence in God's sovereign providence, always to provide for my true needs and to work everything in my life together for the good purpose of making me more like Jesus Christ. Because of the gospel of Christ, I am free and empowered by God's Holy Spirit to love, to serve, to pray. To give, to forgive, to submit, and to build others up. These are just some of the wonderful facets of being united to the life of Jesus Christ because of the gospel. We never move on or away from the gospel because we will never exhaust the depth of the gospel. Sharing the gospel means sharing it in all its fullness so that we can enjoy the intended blessings of mutual encouragement, of growing in spiritual fruitfulness, and to discharge our obligation to all people. So let me encourage you just to be on guard. To be on guard about only thinking about and sharing the gospel in a bare-bones condensed version and this becoming for you an oversimplification or an abbreviation of your own faith. God calls you to enjoy so much more just as he calls the Romans to enjoy that in this letter. And if you recognize yourself in this, if you recognize that you've been been in a pattern and maybe a pattern for a number of years of condensing your rehearsal of the gospel, perhaps even just the rehearsal in your own mind, perhaps moving from rehearsing and, assume, and the condensing the gospel to then assuming the gospel, and perhaps even then going on to ignoring the gospel, then God calls you to repentance. But He also calls you to receive fresh grace for forgiveness and to restore a new delight. In the gospel of his son. And especially as we come to this Romans series. Can I encourage you. Come to it in faith. For how God will speak to you. Whether this is your first time of focusing on this fantastic letter. Or whether you've already sat under the very best teaching of it. Time and time again. Be eager for the gospel to be shared with you. As we go through this letter. That really is the flip side of application here. Just as we are called to be eager to share the gospel, so also be eager to receive the gospel. Because that has the same effect. As we receive the gospel, we grow in being encouraged. As we receive the gospel, we grow in bearing fruitfulness. As we receive the gospel, we receive what somebody has been obliged by God to give to you. So do not settle in your Christian conversations with other believers to not have the gospel saturated in those conversations. As we have seen, we need to continue to share and to hear the gospel, whether that's in our community groups, whether it's in our families, whether it's downstairs at the coffee machine, whether it's in our youth groups or our young adults groups. Be persistent to want to have the gospel shared with you and to share it as well. Be forthright. Take the initiative. Ask for help. Say, hey, I'm having a hard time in the moment having a hard time with this particular struggle, with this particular situation, with these particular thoughts. And I'm really having a hard time understanding how I can see Jesus and the gospel. Would you please help me? Would you please help me see Jesus and the gospel in what I'm going through right now? I wonder what kind of reputation this church would have if that was the essence of our conversations. What do we want King of Grace Church to be known for? We could be known for many things. Our community events, like our full festival or our VBS. We could be known for our building. We could be known for our size. We could be known for our preaching. We could be known for our music and countless other things. And they are all good things in the right place and ser- you, to, get, to serve God's purpose. But I offer to you, from the Romans' example... Let's desire to be a church known for our faith. And like Paul's plan for a church like that, let's plan to share the gospel and the riches of the gospel in every opportunity we have to mutually encourage, to produce fruit, and to meet the obligation that we have one to another and to all people, all to the praise and glory of God. Let's pray together.